Welcome to Lakewood Sermon Podcast. We're glad you're here, and we'd like to invite you to join us on Sunday mornings at 10 online at lakewoodok.com live. Or we'd also love to see you in person at our campus in McAllister. Good morning. Already it's a good day, right? Yeah. Well, we do have a, a, a computer that's working this Sunday. We have uh, some slides that we can put up. So that's nice. We did find out that uh, our, our current computer, our worship computer, has a bad graphics card that needs to be replaced. So uh, we're going to be limping along with this for a little bit. But hey, there's something on the screen, and we're grateful. So that's awesome. Welcome to church. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad that we get to come here and do this together. Um, it's something, you know, it's funny. Uh, it's, it, every weekend kind of approaches with these, this double feeling kind of thing. Because there's the first feeling of, okay, there's a lot to get done, and there's a sermon that you're going to get up, and you're going to try to share the gospel and the weight of what that looks like. And then there's the other side of it, though, uh, which is, hey, our family's coming back together this weekend, and we're all going to be in the same building again together. We get to see each other's faces, or at least a third of each other's faces, and we're going to get to do all this stuff together, and it's going to be really great. And so I I get to enter into these weekends with just this feeling of, man, I I can't wait to see what God's going to do. And I get to be a part of that, and you get to be a part of that. And so as a family together, we get to come together and do this. So we're, I'm, I'm so, so excited. So we're in this series called Big Faith. Uh, we've been talking about how the church is supposed to be a place that's known for love, but we're also supposed to be a place that's known for our faith. Whenever Paul writes to the churches in Rome, he says, you're known across the world for your faith. Uh, when they're talking to Hebrew, the, uh, in the book of Hebrews, they're just talking about how we are supposed to be known for our faith. And if it's something we're supposed to be known for, it should be something that we spend quite a bit of time understanding what it is and what it means, what its implications are for our lives. Because faith has become one of those words that sometimes we use in weird ways. And sometimes we end up saying things like, just have faith, or it all takes faith. And, and really, it's a, it's a really deep concept And so this whole series is kind of about unpacking that a little bit. So in week one, we talked about Abraham. We've been in Hebrews chapter 11, and we're going to be there a little bit more today. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open those up. We're also going to be jumping back to Judges a little bit today, too. Uh, But in week one, we talked about Abraham and Sarah. And we talked about how God called them to faith, but we talked specifically about how it wasn't just a blind faith that they were called to, but whenever God called them to these things, they looked at what God had done beforehand and they reasoned that he would remain faithful. And so our big point for week one was that God doesn't call us to a blind faith, he calls us to a reasoned faith, that we're called to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, but we're also called to love him with all of our mind. And so then in week two, we dived in to the stories of Joshua and Rahab that centered around the city of Jericho. And we talked about how a faith that is reasoned is not alive until it's acted on. And we showed how Joshua acted on his faith by leading the people around the walls of Jericho. We talked about how Rahab acted on her faith. And it's the crazy thing was she wasn't even really a part of the believing race. Like she uh, didn't even really know God, but only from uh, rumor. But how she stepped away from everything that she knew and she acted in faith by helping the spies and putting the red cord out and getting her whole family together. And the crazy thing about that, remember last week we talked about that Rahab ends up, Rahab, who is a prostitute, ends up 
in the lineage of Jesus Christ. If you read Matthew chapter 1, you're going to find her name right in the middle of all of it. And we talked about how God uses people that put their faith in action. And how we don't understand the ripples that happen for whenever we enact our faith. A great line, one of my favorite lines from the, uh, the musical Hamilton is at the very end of it, he says, what is legacy? Legacy is planting seeds in a garden that you never get to see. And it's kind of the same idea here. Because Abraham didn't get to see what the promise completely fulfilled. Joshua and Rahab don't get to see the promise fulfilled. And as we're going to read today, more people just don't get to see that promise fulfilled. So today we're going to continue in our series. And we're going to look at this little section at the end of Hebrews. Uh, It's going to be in chapter 11, starting in verse 32, where uh, basically the author just piles a bunch of people in together. He's talked about some specific instances, but then he goes into like listing everybody else that he could have named but didn't. And so we're going to dive in right now at 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 32. It says, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell you of Gideon, of Barak, of Samson, of Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and of the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. It's really a cool section, right? He says, what else could I say? I wouldn't have time to tell you all the stories of what God does through people who are faithful. And so today, we're going to start looking into some of those stories. Some of the stories that the author puts out at the end of Hebrews 11. Um, And we're specifically today going to be talking about this guy, this little tiny guy named Gideon. He's just a small guy. He's the weakest in his family. Gideon. I was the youngest brother growing up. I had two older brothers, and I was reminded over and over again that I was the weakest in the family. Um, so I, I, really, I, can, I, I really relate to Gideon well in this instance. Uh, but before we dive into that, before we go anything else, and really, even through the story of Gideon, though, we're going to be talking about answering the question of what do we do with our fear when it comes to faith? And so as we unpack that, before we get into that, though, let's stop, and let's go to God, because really... The idea is this. Well, I'll tell you a quick story. I, uh, I got the opportunity this, this weekend. Uh, we celebrated Mallory's birthday, and um, we went to Cedar Lake together as a family. And we had this spot to where we decided, hey, we're just going to walk around the entire lake. Um, we didn't realize it was going to be a five-mile trek. <laughs> we just thought, hey, we're just going to walk around the lake. It's going to be great. We'll bring our dogs, one of whom is like 16 years old. She'll be fine. <laughs> she was not fine. Um, but we decided, hey, we're going to walk around this thing. But there's this one spot to where my son takes my wife's water bottle and just like, you know, like it's like he's drinking, like he's trying to get every last drop out of this thing. And it hit me while I was watching him that there's a difference between how we approach water, right? Sometimes we're like, mm, that's, that's tasty water. But other times we're thirsty. And we gulp it like it's never coming back. And here's the thing. Anytime we approach the word of God, we're called to drink deeply. We're called to go to the well and drink as deep as we can. And I gotta be honest with you, today we're gonna be going through some stuff where you're gonna be able to drink deeply at the well of scripture. But before we dive into that, let's take a second and let's just go to God and ask him to give us the humility 
to see what he's actually saying in his word and the courage to apply it to our lives. Let's stop and let's pray. Uh, God, we love you. We're excited for what you do. Lord, I ask that you would speak today. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would take these words and that you would take them into the hearts of your people, that they would be applied, that they would be enacted. Father, forgive, forgive me where I am weak. Father, I ask that you uh, would do your will today. God, we love you. Please give us the humility to hear your words. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So last week, we looked at the stories of Joshua and Rahab and their faithfulness through the battle of Jericho. We also talked about what God was doing through this battle, through the conquest of the promised land. See, God wasn't just saying, kill everybody, get them out of there, you know. He wasn't just trying to enact vengeance on everybody. What God was doing was he was trying to carve out a place, a place where the people of God would reside. And it was through this place that God was going to bring about not just the city of David, not just David, but the son of David, the lineage of David that was prophesied to be the redeemer of the world. Through this pocket of land, he was intending to bring about the salvation of the world. Now, we know that Jesus is this one that was prophesied, but the Israelites didn't know this. But really, they didn't do their part. See, God gave them some pretty clear instructions, and they didn't do their part. And so, when we dive into this today, we're going to see in the book of Judges some of the devastating consequences And the effects of those choices. But even through that, we're also going to see God raise up some pretty incredible heroes that are called judges. That continually restore God's people both uh, in the right standing in the land and in the right standing with God. But before we dive into that, we've got to talk a little bit about the book of Judges. See, because the book of Judges is one of those that is infuriating to read. Uh, I mean, if, you like, if, you, if, if one of your favorite movies is like Gladiator or Braveheart, you're going to love the book of Judges. It's a lot of battles. It's a lot of really cool things that happen. But it's infuriating because there's this cycle that happens over and over and over again. You see, because the people believe in God. Yay, God. We're so for him, right? But then it says that they start doing their own thing. And they forget the Lord is their God. So then God removes his protection from them, and they get taken over by one of the other groups of people that they left in the promised land. And then they don't like that very much, and so they start to complain, and they start to beg God, I'm so sorry, God, please deliver us from this. We can't stand up underneath this. And then God would send them a judge, and that judge would do some amazing things. And the people of Israel would be delivered from that oppression, And they would be put back to right again. And then the judge would die. And then the people would go back to doing their own thing. And they would forget that the Lord was their God. And they'd do it over and over and over again. It's infuriating. If you're a parent and you've ever had to tell your kid over and over and over again to clean their room. And it takes five hours when it should have taken ten minutes. You get the idea. Sorry, that one's still pretty fresh for me. (laughs) But anyway... Um, it's in one of these cycles that we find a man named Gideon. 
Gideon's one of my favorite guys. We're going to dive into his story right now. So Israel at this time had already turned from God, and God had already turned them over into the hands of the Midianites. Now, the Midianites uh, were kind of mean people. They were not very friendly. What the Midianites would do is every time that the Israelites would set up camp and start to be okay, they would come in and they would kill their livestock, they would take over their crops, and they would push them out. And so they were just not able to provide for themselves because the Midianites kept coming in. And that's where we actually pick up the story. Gideon, who's the small guy, the weakest in his family, is hiding inside a wine press. And he's threshing wheat, he's pressing wheat in a wine press because he's trying to hide it from the Midianites. They're scrounging for food. And that's where we're going to pick it up. It's in Judges, starting in chapter 6, and we're going to be starting in verse 12. It says, An angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Which is really, really funny, because I love that. We've already talked about how he's the weakest one in his family. He's at the smallest tribe. And then, The Lord's with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us, and he's given us into the hands of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said this, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Did I not send you? Okay, really quick, we're going to pause just for a second. So Midian, or not Midian, sorry, Gideon is working inside a wine press trying to get some food going. And God comes up and he calls him and he says, hey, mighty man of valor. And we're about to find out that Gideon does not see himself this way. But here's the thing that's really cool about this. God isn't calling him based on his ability. God is calling him based on what he's about to do through him. And so through God, he will be a mighty man of valor. But Gideon's response is right here. He said, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. So Gideon kind of takes the Moses approach. He comes up to God and he says, hey, you've got the wrong guy. I'm not your man here. I, I, there's no way I can do what you're calling me to do. I'm from a tiny tribe. I'm the smallest in my father's house. Surely you mean for somebody else to lead. And man, I get that. Because have you ever noticed that God tends to call us to the areas to where we're not the most confident? Where we don't have the most natural ability? With Moses, who had a speech impediment, he called him to make great speeches in front of Pharaoh. With Gideon, who's this tiny guy, he says, you're going to be the leader, the warrior. And God calls people like this because in the end, he wants to do through them what they can't do on their own. But as we see over and over again in Scripture, and as one of our elders not too long ago stood up on this stage and said, and it's our first point of the day, is this, that God does not call the equipped, he equips the called. Now, if you're taking notes with us, uh, write it down on your, on your card, or um, if you would, uh, we've got it on the app too, on the notes section, you can fill in the blank and save those, or even email it to yourself. Uh, but we're at the point of God does not call the equipped, he equips the called. 
And we see this as Gideon who goes on to tear, or we see this as, as Gideon goes on to do what God has called him to do. And God first tells him, hey, I want you to go tear down the Asherah poles. Now the Asherah poles were these poles that were up that were used in the worship of the god Baal. And so Gideon goes down and he cuts down the Asherah poles and he uses the wood as firewood in an altar to the Lord. It's bold. But even in his faithfulness, we see that he still struggles with fear because God then tells him, go and take on Midian. And what he does is this. He argues. He relents, and then he asks for a sign. He says, I'll do it, but I've got to be sure it's really you telling me this is what you want me to do. I gotta know that this. I'll, if you if you're telling me to do this, I'll do it. But I gotta know that this is what you're really telling me to do. And we're gonna pick that up in Judges chapter six, starting in verse thirty-six. Gideon said to God, "If you will save Israel by my hand, God's already told him he will do this. But if you will save him, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry all around the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand." As you have said, and it was so, when he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. And so like, okay, so he goes to God, he says, God, I got to be sure, if you can, just show me this sign, make the ground dry and the fleece covered with dew, just show me that and I will believe that this is what you call, and the next day he gets up, he walks over, he picks up the fleece and he wrings it out and it fills a bowl of water. And what does Gideon do? He says, okay, God, I got to make sure, I really got to make sure that this is you. And if this part is not so me, it's that thing of saying, you know, okay, I'm going to flip this corner, and if it lands up heads, then I'm going to go run three miles today, and I'm going to start working out, and I flip it, and it lands on heads, and I'm like, I'm going to try best out of three at least. I mean, we can't just leave it up to one coin toss. And this is what Gideon does. He says, okay, that could have been a fluke. That could be coincidence. So, and we're going to pick it up again in verse 39. So then Gideon said to God, and I love it starts this way, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. We can see his fear in this. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only and on the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night. And it was dry on the fleece only and on the ground there was dew. So at this point, it's pretty obvious that God is calling him. He has run out of reasons to doubt that God is telling him to do this big thing. He's afraid. Can we empathize with that? <laughs> no, I can't. Sometimes God calls us to do things that are big, that are bigger than we are. And the truth is, if you really approach God in faith, he will call you to do things that are bigger than you are. And this is what we're seeing right here. And so how do we handle it whenever we have faith, but our fear is threatening to overwhelm us? How do we handle it whenever we approach God and we want to approach him with this great level of faith, but we approach him with everything we're willing to do for him, but then he tells us the thing that he's calling us to do that's nothing like what we're willing to do. And we're afraid. How do we, how do we approach that? Can we have fear and faith at the same time? And I believe that the story of Gideon tells us that, yes, we can. 
but with a fairly big calling that goes along with it. So our second point of the day is this, that faith and fear can coexist, but we have to choose which we will obey. You get that? They can be together, but we can only obey one. When we obey our fear, we become paralyzed. We, we don't move. But when we choose to obey our faith, God does big things. And at the end of the day, all we can do is say, it was his work and my privilege. And we see in the story of Gideon that he is afraid, but he obeys. He puts together an army of 32,000 men. I was sitting around a campfire the other night with my, with my kids, and uh, Micaiah sits down with me, and he looks up at me, and he says, uh, so dad, what are you going to preach on this Sunday? It's like, well, let me tell you, son. And I got to the point of saying 32,000 people, and he goes, wow, that's a lot. I'm like, yeah, but here's the deal. They were going up against an army of Midianites that had 135,000 people in it. So we have 32,000 people going against 135,000 people. Which means that even if the Midianite army lost 100,000 people, they would still outnumber the Israelites. This is huge, but we serve a big God, a big God that can do big things. And so they move forward, and Gideon is taking this army out, and they're going to go up against the Midianites, and they're marching. Yeah, we're 32,000 people. Yeah, there are 135,000 people, but we serve a big God. And I happened to do the math on this, and I figured it out. It's a lot. <laughs> but then God speaks again. And he decides to put more weight on the faith of Gideon. And we're going to pick that up in Judges 7, starting in verse 1. This is what God says. Then Jerubbabel. Oh, here's the other thing. Jerubbabel? Or Jerubel, sorry, Jerubel. Um, that's what they named him after he cut down the Asher pole. Uh, it's really interesting. They changed his name because Jerubel... Bell means that let Baal deal with him. And so what they said was this. Hey, if, if he offended Baal, then let Baal deal with him. And so they changed his name to Jeroboam. There's your little history lesson. But that's Gideon. And all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them, by the hill of Morah. And in the valley, the Lord said to Gideon, now here's the weird thing. The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from the Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. So God comes up to Gideon and he says, Hey, Gideon, you have too many people. And Gideon's like, No, they have too many people. Why don't you do something about that? No, Gideon, you have too many people. So here's what I want you to do. Go out in the camp and say, hey, guys, if you're afraid, it's okay. Just go ahead and pack up and head out. Can you imagine? They're already outnumbered, severely outnumbered. And so Gideon says, guys, if you're afraid, go ahead and head out. And as he's standing there, 22,000 people get up. And they're like, okay, you know what? I was feeling a little bit skittish on this. I'm really glad for the opportunity to step out. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and take my stuff, and I'm going to head out. Good luck storming the castle. It'll take a miracle. 
If any of you got the Princess Bride reference on that, thank you. Uh, But anyway, so they're left with 10,000 people. And we're thinking, okay, 10,000 people. But God's still big, right? Right. God is still big. And so they're marching forward. But then in Judges chapter 7, starting in verse 4, the Lord said to Gideon, hey, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I'm going to test them for you there. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink, and the number of those who lapped, put in their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will, say, I will save you and give you the Midianites into your hand. And let all the others go every man to his home. So they were down to 10,000 from 32,000, going up against 135,000. And then God says, you still have too many. And so he brings them to this river, and he says, go ahead and have them a drink. And then everybody who lapped up, they said, okay, this, these 300, that's your army. And so Gideon sends home 9,700 people. Which is great. Because now all they have to do is each one of their 300 just has to kill 450 people each, and then they win the day. And then God says something that I personally find just hilarious. In chapter 7, verse 9. So that same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pira, your servant, and you shall hear what they say. And afterwards, your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. The thing I laugh about that is whenever God says, If you are afraid. Can you imagine yourself being in that situation and if even being a concept there? No, you're just going to be afraid, right? You're about to go up against 135,000 people with 300 people. You're going to be afraid. And God says, hey, if you're afraid, and we know that Gideon's afraid, you know why? Because he gets up and goes down to the camp. He goes and checks it out. And God was not surprised by Gideon's fear, yet he still called him to move. God understands when we're afraid, but he doesn't intend to leave us there. So Gideon goes to the camp, and he sees Something he didn't expect. The Midianite army is terrified of the Israelites. So Gideon goes back. He takes his army. He divides it into three groups of 100 each. He gives them each a trumpet, and he gives them a torch. And he says, surround the encampment, which of 135,000 people, 300, I'm pretty sure it took them (laughs) pretty much 300 people to surround that encampment. They surround the encampment. And then at his signal, they break jars, they blow trumpets, and they shout. Remember when we talked about this with Jericho, right? This does not seem like a great battle strategy. None of this does. None of it makes sense. But then they surround the encamp, they break the jars, they blow the trumpets, they shout at the top of their lungs, the sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And then you know what happens? The Midianites all start fighting each other. 
and the Israelites are just watching it happen. The army below attacks itself and flees. And at the end of it, only 15,000 of the Midianites are left out of the 135,000. So here's a couple things to get from this. A couple things to know from this. This story really isn't about the size of the armies. God could win with one man as he did with Samson. God could win with thousands of men as he did with Deborah and Barak. God reduces the number of men because he knows that they are too many for the Israelites to be able to see what God is doing. And God is trying to show his people what he is going to do for his people. His whole purpose here is to remind the Israelites who he is. God is intentionally reminding them of who he is. That's why at the beginning of this whole thing, whenever they first start crying out for a savior, for a judge to come in, God doesn't immediately go to Gideon. Instead, God sends a prophet. The people forget about the Lord, and that's why he sends a prophet at the beginning. And that's going to be in Judges 6 and verse 7. It says, when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sends a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and I brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their, their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. The problem was never the Midianites. The problem was that the people forgot who God was. They forgot to treat him as Lord. But the crazy thing after all of this, after God delivers his people, after he shows without a doubt that he is doing things through Gideon and these 300 men that took on the 135,000 and really didn't even have to raise up a sword, that between, for, from all of that, that they're good for a while, but then eventually Gideon dies, they forget who the Lord is, and they go back to doing their own thing. It's one of the things that we really need to do in looking at this. We need to realize that the experience of the Israelites, because I gotta be honest, I read it and I think, how stupid can these people be? But the thing that I need to come to, and I think one of the steps of wisdom in reading this is to understand that we're not very far removed from them. The Israelites were supposed to live in a land that was solely reserved for the people of God. But because of their actions, they're now in a land inhabited by pagans and idol worshipers. And so what happens is they begin to assimilate with the foreigners until their practices look more like those of the pagans than they do of the Israelites. They forget that the Lord is their God. And how is that similar to our situation? Ephesians chapter 4 verse 22 says this, Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and the true righteousness and holiness. We've been told many times in Scripture that we need to put off our old self, that we need to allow our old self to die, right? But what happens is this. 
We only put to death the things that we want to put to death. And we hold on to everything else. And we carry it with us. And we take these corpses with us. But eventually, we start to like some of the things that we used to like. And we start to assimilate it back into our lives. And eventually, we look more like our old selves than we do like the Christians, the new creations that God has called us to be. And God brings about times of realization and times of repentance. And then we're good with God. But then we forget who he is because we go back to that cycle again. We are so close to the Israelites here. Except in their process, it took them generations to go through this. And we go through this sometimes in days and weeks. We put off the things that are easily surrendered. We adopt the things that come more naturally to us. And we become okay with this half-life of devotion. When we don't put the old self down completely, it infiltrates Slowly, bit by bit, it gets us to give up the small pieces of ground until we find ourselves in places that we hoped we would never be or that we swore we would never be again. It was true for the Israelites. It's true for me. It's true for you. And it's a battle that would last the entirety of our lives. In fact, it's a battle that really wasn't even resolved in the book of Judges. If you could read all the stories in Judges from Samson to Jephthah to Gideon going through the entire book, you would see these incredible things that God did to save his people. But the amazing thing is the very last verse in all of Judges, at the very end of the book, in Judges chapter 21, verse 25, it says this, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So at the very end of Judges... Okay. At the very end of Judges, we find that everything that God did, and we still get to the end, and they're still doing whatever's right in their own eyes. They're still going back to their own things. But if I could, let me point back really quickly to the story of Gideon. Remember that God didn't need Gideon to win the battle. He used Gideon to speak the greater point, which was that the Israelites, the people of God, needed God, that they were lost without God. And at the end of Judges, we still see this great need because in our own strength, 100 times out of 100, we still go back to our old ways. We still go back to the same struggles. We'll lean on our own understanding and we do whatever feels right to us. And so the question is, what do we actually need here? What did the Israelites actually need here? And that's their next point, which is this, that like the Israelites, we don't need a temporary judge. We need a permanent savior. That is what we're looking for. That is what we cannot do on our own. We need Jesus. We need to realize that he's the one that fights our battles, that he's the one who acts on our behalf. And the greatest truth at the end of Judges is that the judges were not enough no amount of judges would ever be able to do for the Israelites what really needed to be done because what was needed was Jesus. He's the one who wins the fight. He's the one that sets things to right. And what we see in the book of Judges, what we see in the story of Gideon is that we are called to have the faith to act, to step into some pretty uncertain situations. But we're also to have the faith that God is the one who wins the battle. There's this really great spot in the book of Exodus. They're standing on the edge of the Red Sea and everyone's panicking because the Egyptians are coming up behind them and Moses gets up in front of everybody and he says, 
Guys, this is what the Lord says. Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring to you. These Egyptians, these enemies that you see in front of you, you're never going to see them again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. And it's the same thing here. Because every single person in this room, we share a lot of things. One of those being that we have Jesus who loves us. But the other thing is this, that we struggle. And we have enemies. And sometimes we lose battles to those enemies. But understand this. To truly be a person of faith is to understand that the battle belongs to the Lord. That Jesus is the one that fights our battles. That you were not equipped to fight the battle. Gideon was not equipped to fight the battle that God called him into, and God didn't intend for him to fight it. God was the one that fought the battle. God will fight the battle for us. That's the faith of the mustard seed that's enough to move mountains. And at times, my prayer is that it's enough to move me, that it's enough to move you. Because there are times where I'd look up a mountain and I'd say, I'd, I'd sooner see God move that than move, move my stubborn heart. Because God's going to call you to places with uncertain ground. And he will do this to remind you of who he is and who you are in him. And at these moments, you will have to decide if you're going to obey your fear or your faith. Because when we find ourselves paralyzed by fear, we will always reach for comfort over obedience. But when we acknowledge our fear and still choose faith, God does some amazing things. He uses us to do them. At which point we get to say that the glory is God and the privilege is ours. It's a completely understandable and normal thing to have fear whenever we come to God and say, God, whatever you want with my life, so be it. It's completely normal to be afraid and enter into that. But God calls us to take the next step and take our fear and place it in his hands as well. And then we obey our faith. And then we too get to become part of what the author of Hebrews is saying when he talks about the, those that live the life of faith. Because every person on the list is very flawed. But they had faith. And that is what uh, my prayer is for you, for me. <laughs> that as a church we would be known as people that take scary steps and then we do them in faith. Let's pray. God, we love you. Uh, Father, I ask that today you would continue to work in us, uh, that you'd help us to do some battle with this as we move forward today. Um, God, I, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would speak to us as we go to lunch, as we sit at home, as we do yard work, whatever we're gonna do today, Lord that you would, you would just keep bringing this idea of faith into our hearts, Lord, and that you would challenge us to move forward. God, please give us a vision of what it looks like whenever your children step in faith. Please overwhelm us. And Father, <laughs> with the faith of a mustard seed, we ask that you would move us. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Mm -hmm.